prophet is no longer king. So in this light, what if we were to reconsider our definition and practice of efficiency? Why is the first thought always to contain your employees, limiting their actions and controlling their lives? How can these oppressive methods still be justified in the service of efficiency and maximizing outputs? We know that these methods do not work in the short and long term. Welcome to Fashion as a Great Teacher. This episode brings you Reconsidering Efficiency as Priority, the provocation by Sani Dolat at Defashioning Education, a critical thinking and making conference in Berlin, the digital multilogue on fashion education 2023. Sunny Dolat is a cultural producer, creative director and fashion curator. As the co-founder of the Nest Collective, he actively promotes art and culture in Kenya. He challenges social and political issues and is particularly concerned in his work with Africa's place in global and cultural debates and dialogues. Join us for provocation that exposes the cracks in efficiency and the clash between tradition and modernization. Sandy Dulat navigates the African fashion landscape, where artisans hold sway and designers forge personal connections with their craft, and sparks a vital conversation on fashion, culture, and the timeless significance of treasured creations. I always love starting my presentations with a little story. It's a rather odd habit I picked up in high school. But I find it always provides a gentle but always necessary transition into what we'll be discussing. So allow me to start with a little story. A couple of years ago, I traveled to Addis Ababa for a scoping visit. There'd been a lot of talk about Ethiopia turning into the next manufacturing destination of the world, with China looking to start outsourcing some of their manufacturing work to Addis, but also for China, a sort of broader move to rebrand what Made in China means. From a state perspective, the government was making all the right moves to position Ethiopia as the next manufacturing hub, offering various incentives to foreign manufacturers to set up in Ethiopia. And it was certainly working. Fast fashion giant H&M had set up an office by then, and this was back in 2016. PVH had also started doing some of their manufacturing in Ethiopia. So I was really curious to see and understand some of these strategies and progress points. So over the period of a week, uh, we visited a couple of factories producing leather, leather goods, and garments. And it was really encouraging to see some key lessons from other manufacturing regions being implemented. For instance, we saw this one factory that was recycling all of its wastewater, every single drop, which is very encouraging. I also have to say that I saw some of the most beautiful and stunning leather I've ever seen. It was supple and buttery and treated using some really, really incredible techniques. But one conversation during one particular visit stuck with me. We visited this one factory, great premises, well-lit, well-laid-out, great air circulation, great workflow, really relaxed environment. Overall, it was a really impressive operation. But they were only operating at about half of their capacity. Most of the stations were vacant. So I asked the manager about this, and they explained that it was planting season. And during this season, many of the workers simply just didn't show up because there were also farmers with their own land. And so they'd travel up country every time the relevant seasons came to prepare their land. Some of them would return after, but others wouldn't. 
So naturally, this posed a challenge for the factory, as every factory aspires to operate at maximum capacity for efficiency. They mentioned that one solution they were considering was on-site accommodation for the staff to deter from this biannual exodus. So essentially, an on-premises hostel. That statement concerned me deeply for obvious reasons, because this scenario has played out before in many factories, and the endings have not always been great. And I couldn't help but ask myself, why is the first thought always to contain your employees, limiting their actions and controlling their lives? How can these oppressive methods still be justified in the service of efficiency and maximizing outputs? We know that these methods do not work in the short and long term. Beyond the overt moral bankruptcy, even consumers are increasingly rising up against and boycotting clothes that were made by suffering workers and forced labor. But more and more, it's becoming evident that sacrificing people to get profit is why so much is falling apart. The business world is slowly, eventually, getting the message. We're seeing much more investment in keeping businesses alive as opposed to mindless expansion. The methods people are leaning towards are people-led, people-centered, and people-first. Profit is no longer king. It does not sit alone on a throne. It instead has joined a committee of other values and sits at the table with them. So in this light, what if we were to reconsider our definition and practice of efficiency? What if, for instance, instead of resisting the cultural practices that sector workers ascribe to, we actually embraced them? What if this factory devised a way to adapt their production schedules to allow workers time off during planting and harvesting seasons? Yes, it'll probably be challenging and even inefficient, but I strongly believe and increasing data backs this belief, that it could lead to an increased worker satisfaction and retention, ultimately resulting in increased production capacities. If trained and experienced workers who loved their work and were motivated to stay were kept instead of lost every planting season, what new heights could this factory scale? What would happen if we thought about efficiency a little differently? Yes, we must be extremely efficient in production processes and material consumption to stop unnecessary waste during this part of the cycle as regards product. But what if with people, we started to prioritize things like, dare I say, happiness or joy? But I don't think capitalism likes or is interested in the idea of happiness, particularly that of employees. So maybe a term better understood within a capitalistic framework is job satisfaction. Across Africa, we find ourselves at a fascinating juncture where multi-generational artisanal traditions that are centuries old coexist with or even overlap the hungry and futuristic ambitions of industrialization. However, these moments can be fraught with tension due to the stark disparities in values between artisanal work and the mass processing of industrialization. In manufacturing, for instance, artisanal workings place a high value on patience, embracing slower and contemplative processes that acknowledge and honor 
the resources we consume as a way of conferring layers of value and preciousness into the end product. This enables the end consumer to treat it with more care, revere it when used, and even sometimes pass it on to someone else to use, who also has years of love and care added to the precious gift that appreciates in value because of time. Conversely, industrialization demands the prioritization of speed and apparent efficiency in the creation of mass identical outputs, with the stated intention being affordability and greater access by larger numbers of people. Ironically, there's little regard to the waste generated in the process, both in raw materials and process ingredients such as energy, water, and more. The end product is rarely as highly regarded and is easy to discard after a few years. One of the things that I find truly special about the fashion spaces in Africa is that every designer I've met over the years does all their production either in-house within their own ateliers or somewhere else in-country. And what this means is that all these designers have direct oversight over their production lines. They have direct relationships with their employees. They know their names, they know their families, they know their ambitions, they know their strengths, and they know their weaknesses. At a time when manufacturing is increasingly veiled to hide gaping oversights, especially in the global north where the invisibility of manufacturing only perpetuates the guilt-free overconsumption of clothing, the approach that we see on the continent is a welcome alternative that allows us to see who and how our clothes are being made. I want to be really careful to also hold space for the significant frustrations of producing in Africa. There's nothing utopian about it. Those same designers can also give you a long list of challenges, starting with arbitrary power cuts to inordinately high taxes on implementation of raw materials, to the constant retraining of artisans on new techniques because most learning is by informal apprenticeship methods. But still, these designers persist because it's become increasingly clear that the systems that were long peddled by the West are broken and that perhaps our systems were right all along, inefficient as they may be. Returning to the theme of efficiency, we've somehow been persuaded that the need for speed is paramount, so much so that some retailers are even contemplating drone deliveries in the near future, promising shop to door within an hour, replacing the one accepted day-long way. I recall the days when eagerly anticipating a new episode of Sex and the City meant waiting the whole week until Friday at 9 p.m., whereas nowadays streaming services offer up entire seasons for us to binge in one go, leading us to consume them in a day or two, or sometimes even an afternoon, which makes the wait for the next season almost unbearable. Then, of course, there's the short video format of TikTok and Instagram Reels, which has completely obliterated what little remained of our attention span to the extent that many people nowadays find it challenging to sit through an entire movie. We have unsurprisingly become wildly impatient. In response and resistance to this panting impatience, the slow, deep breathing of an intriguing parallel and necessary patience and intentionality is resurging, being embraced by designers and retailers alike. One example is Nigerian footwear brand Kerele, based out of Lagos, 
They make all of their footwear on pre-order basis, taking up to two weeks to produce. Another is the e-retailer Industry Africa, who on their site have a made-to-order category, which has an extensive list of brands like Femi Handbags, Kenta Gentleman, Pepero, and Loza Maliombo. All of these products and all of these brands take anywhere between two to four weeks to produce a single item. And so you have to learn to be patient. What's really incredible about these cultures of made-to-measure is that this has always been our idea of mass market fashion. Fashion that's available to the masses, but only on a needs basis. I'd like to jump a little bit to education, because education undoubtedly plays a role in shaping and inspiring a necessary revaluation of the essence of what it means to be a designer and the values that are prioritized. One aspect that has consistently struck me, particularly when observing students coming from the global south who pursue their studies in the global north, is the glaring disparity between the education they receive and the actual dynamics and principles of the environments in which they're likely to operate. It comes as no surprise that I've witnessed numerous exceptionally talented designers embark on their educational journeys at some of the world's most esteemed design institutions, only to return home and face insurmountable challenges when attempting to establish their practices. This abrupt transition from a world where they have unfettered access to state-of-the-art equipment and expertise to one where such resources are suddenly scarce is a stark reality. Moreover, they find themselves ill-prepared to navigate the unique challenges of their home contexts, such as coping with issues like power outages or load shedding if you're in South Africa, inconsistent water supply, lack of, said state-of-the-art equipment, or slightly more complex matters, such as the ins and outs of personnel management, like working with artisan communities, where things like age and gender inform and affect the kinds of interactions that can be had person to person. As a result, any earnest attempt to instill the values and systems they have acquired from outside encounter, and rightfully so, significant unwieldiness and at times pushback. Eventually, they're confronted with two choices. The first, to adapt, albeit reluctantly, to the changed prevailing conditions, or the second, to reluctantly again, relinquish their design aspirations and seek alternative career paths. It sounds very dramatic and either or, but it's like studying to be a doctor and going home to work in a place with an insufficiently equipped operating theater, which also happens. Allow me to jump a little bit again, but I wanted to share a project that we did in 2021, which started out as a curiosity around the establishment of new textile heritages. Kenya doesn't have as rich a textile heritage, but I'd always wondered, must a heritage only be rooted in the past, or could it be forged anew in the present? So as part of a wider project, exploring sustainable textiles, sacred textiles, and printed textiles, I worked with two Kenyan graphic designers to release a collection of four prints, exploring what our current ideas, questions, jokes, and statements about culture, aesthetics, and beauty could have with our eternal love for fabric, and obviously translate these into prints. The first of these was Nandi Flame, which was illustrated by the amazing Monica Obaga, 
Um, and I'm happy to report that the fabric sold out in under three hours. I think it's fair to call that a success and say that the questions we were asking were deeply resonant. However, the real success for me of that exploration was far beyond just the sales. It was important to me that the end product from our side was just a printed cloth with no additions or further making. And for a few reasons. One was so that the product could be easily accessible to a wide demographic of people. But second, which is the most important one, was to facilitate a return to the age-old crafting tradition that has thrived on the continent for decades across generations. The incredible art of co-creation between maker and wearer, nowadays commonly known as made-to-measure or bespoke. It's the infinite possibility that comes with receiving new yards of fabric to remake in your own image into something that is uniquely yours. And the creations were quite something. One of my favorite creations was Mutamana, which is a traditional dress from Burundi made from the Nandi flame fabric. I don't think I quite ever expected that this contemporary cloth that we had developed would be used to make indigenous dress. But what I was truly unprepared for with this whole exploration was meeting people two years later who would tell me that they still hadn't gotten anything made because they were still in search for the perfect design for the fabric that they had. I realized that in those moments, we had somehow, almost accidentally, created something that people treasured so deeply and wanted to be intentional about. I'm still very curious about the things that we treasure, especially in this day and age where everything feels so disposable. So I'm quite keen to expand this work to really understand why people responded to it the way that they did. I have a couple of my own theories, which I'm currently testing, so I'll report back when that's concluded. But I think ultimately that this is where we have to return to as an industry, to the slow, allegedly inefficient creation of things that people treasure. This slowness serves as a necessary reminder that these products and materials they're made of take time to grow, to be harvested, to be dyed, to be cut to be sewn, to be packaged, and to be shipped. In a larger sense, the reintroduction of time as an invisible constituent part or key ingredient in the manufacture of fashion echoes the rallying cry in the face of massive global change and social, environmental, and cultural upheaval that we cannot afford to be reckless with our own resources anymore, or even with ourselves both the human and animal and plant and fungi and all beings on our planet, as we become more painfully aware that these resources we have access to are finite. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Fashion as a Great Teacher, spread the word, and join us for our next episode. Mm-hmm.